if you go back, you know, decades and decades, and particularly within the past couple of decades, to see the kinds of advantages that have been given to big businesses. That has been sort of a consistent theme, but it really came to a head, obviously, last year, where the government picked winners and losers based not on data and science, but based on political clout and connections. And what this did was enabled the most historic and epic wealth transfer that we have ever seen from Main Street to Wall Street. The following is brought to you by Thrive, the end-to-end client experience platform that helps you get the job, manage the job, and get credit. Hey, hey, this is Gordon Henry at Winning on Main Street, and this week you get to meet Carol Roth. Carol is a small business advocate, the author of a new book, The War on Small Business, recovering investment banker, she likes to say, entrepreneur, built a legacy planning product called Future File, has been a chief customer officer with a toy company, and completed millions of dollars in mergers and acquisitions. So fascinating background. Welcome, Carol. Gordon, it's so great to be here with you. Thanks so much for, uh, for the chat. Yeah, so excited to have you. So before we dig into your new book and all that, um, tell us just a little bit about your background, your journey, uh, you've done a lot. How'd you get into the small business space? Yes, I'm a collector of experiences. Um, After school where I had taken on a ton of debt because I was the first one in my family to go to college and nobody could afford it. And I had like $40,000 back in, in 1995. I decided to go into investment banking to be able to pay it down, you know, sort of makes sense. And one of the things that would happen to me as an investment banker is I would get phone calls consistently from small business owners who were desperate for good advice but really couldn't afford to pay for the services of an investment bank or a major consultancy. And it was something that always stuck with me as, you know, wow, there are all these people who really could use uh, better advice than they were getting. So when I decided, you know, after doing my stint in investment banking and deciding I was going to transition my career one of the things that occurred to me is that perhaps I could use the media as a way to leverage better advice for small business owners at scale and kind of get over that hump of the the issue of them not being able to pay for one-on-one consulting. And you know that was that was before there were actual influencers. That was before you know a lot of these social media platforms <laughs> took out. So it was me with like my sister and brother-in-law and a camera answering entrepreneurs' questions, sticking it up on the web and, and trying to navigate that situation. And that kind of you know put me into media and kind of moved everything along. And you know, since getting involved in that, I've always had a, a, a soft spot for small business, you know, understanding how important they are to the economy, not just here in the United States, but on a worldwide basis. And, you know, how, how few people really spend the time to understand how important that is and what that stands for in terms of economic freedom. So that has always been a component, even though I'm doing like 9 million things, um, you know, advocating for small business has always been really important to me. Yeah, fantastic. So, you have a book, uh, maybe you'll show us. It's a, a brand new, exciting book called The War on Small Business. So what is the war on small business? Why should we care about it? 
So the war on small business is the tilting of the playing field um, towards big business and away from small businesses. And I, I don't care what you think the reason is. I don't care if you think that they are too small to matter. I don't care if you think that they are too hard to control. But if you go back you know, decades and decades, and particularly within the past couple of decades, to see the kinds of advantages that have been given to big businesses in terms of anti-competitive regulation or just onerous licensing and, and costs that are put on that make it so much more difficult to start and to succeed as a small business. Um, you know, that has been sort of a consistent theme, but it really came to a head obviously last year where the government picked winners and losers based not on data and science, but based on political clout and connections. And lo and behold, who's not the connected group of people, it's the small businesses. And unfortunately, they were not appropriately compensated. So it wasn't even that they were just targeted, but PPP and all of the funding that was given for small business was not only a fraction of the overall funding that was given out, but certainly not enough for subjugating their property rights. And what this did was enabled the most historic and epic wealth transfer that we have ever seen from Main Street to Wall Street. We had seven technology companies that gained $3.4 trillion in value, record year for IPOs, record year for value created uh, via SPACs. At the same time, hundreds of thousands of small businesses had shuttered by the middle of last year millions of more were struggling to survive. So it really just shone a light on this disparity. And I wanted to make a catalog of it because even right now, you're already seeing sort of the gaslighting, oh, well, the economy is doing well and look at the stock market and whatnot, but that's not the reality for the half the economy that sits with the decentralized pre-COVID 30.2 million small business owners. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, the administration at that time, obviously the Trump administration, pretty pretty pro-business, you would say. Was this an intentional transfer of wealth? Were they anti-small business or was it more the lobbying that came from the big businesses just sent the money that way? Yeah, so it's important. Um, this is a nonpartisan book. So this is a systemic government issue at all levels, federal, state, local. Um, and it's not just one administration or one party. This has happened sort of across the board. Last year, this wealth transfer happened on two levels. Primarily, it happened at the state level with the states that shuttered the small businesses. So if your small business wasn't open or if people were locked down and couldn't come out to your small business, Obviously, those dollars weren't spent in your dry cleaner, your uh, pizza parlor, your hair salon, whatever it is. But those dollars were then transferred to Amazon and to Walmart, hmm. in some cases to weed dispensaries that hadn't even been legal a couple of years prior. Um, you know, all of these these sort of connected businesses. So, so revenues were shifted and that was one layer. The second layer, which gets a bit wonky, but is really important to understand because of all of the disadvantages it has created um, and really has been a big driver of the wealth transfer is the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve's huge intervention, which supports the stock market, it does not support Main Street uh, and the, the overall economy, driving down interest rates back near zero, 
printing, and I use the word printing um, in quotes because it, they don't actually even print the money. They just create an accounting entry and create money out of nowhere. Uh, this level of intervention created basically disrupts risk in the market. Uh, it puts you know a lot of a lot more money in the stock market. It expands the multiples that are paid for these big companies. So a large part of that value increase was done on the basis of monetary policy on top of that expansion in revenues and profits for the businesses. So it's it's very complex. And then obviously, you know, you have the the kind of grassroots stuff, the lobbying and the regulations and all those kinds of things as well. But you know, the thing I'm trying to dispel is A, that we had lockdowns because for all these big businesses, they weren't locked down. We were not all in it together. If the big businesses had been locked down the same way the small businesses had, if there hadn't been that support for the, the stock market artificially at the expense of savers and retirees and, and kind of the average person, there would have been widespread screaming. Like, I don't know that the economy would have been locked down for more than two or three weeks. And then the third piece is just this inappropriate level of compensation that if you are going to, to target that one group, and again, we, we spent last year more than $6 trillion addressing this, and you know, a tiny fraction of that went to those who were specifically targeted. So it's those sort of three levels of myths that, that can keep getting sort of propagated and that is really important for um, everyone, especially small business owners, but anybody who advocates for that and wants to have economic freedom in this country that they, they need to understand. Yeah. So Carol, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we are where we are now, whatever happened, happened. And I'm wondering, where are small businesses in terms of, you know, have they reemerged? And in particular, what do they have to do now to win? Yeah, so obviously, you know, small business, you know, we like to talk about it you know, collectively, but it is so big and decentralized again, before the pandemic it was 30.2 million of them. Uh, many of them closed. We know for a fact, hundreds of thousands, probably a million to 2 million closed permanently. They've gone away. There's no bringing them back. We have millions more who are really struggling to survive. Uh, everything from personal loans that were taken out pre-pandemic, which still need to be paid, even though the business um, is struggling to the fact that all these sort of long tail effects are um, impacting small business, such as the inability to find workers and to be able to bring people back into the workforce and disruption in the supply chain, you know, inflation and all of these things that happen because of the turning on and turning off of a large part of the economy, as well as some of the structure of, of the fiscal and monetary policy that was done. So small businesses are in a really precarious situation. Alignable, which is a really great referral network for small business, has about 6.5 million small businesses on its platform. They do polls every month. And the last one that came out showed that just over a third of the small businesses still were concerned that they were not going to be able to pay that month's rent. So that just gives you a scope of like how day-to-day -day it really is for many of the small business owners. And again, it's not every small business because there were some small businesses, if you were in the right arena or you were you know, remote or whatever it is, like you may have thrived. And there's some that you know didn't really have an effect. But I would say for a good you know, third of the small businesses, 
out there. Um, yeah, this has been just epically devastating and they're really trying to just get by day to day and they've <laughs> they made it this far and they can't believe like, oh, I've got people coming to my restaurant now and you know they they're dying to to have my like signature salad. The signature salad's now three times as expensive and I have no servers so it takes me 3 hours to serve them. Then what happens? You have a bad experience as a consumer, do you go back to that business? So yeah. there's so much so many things to contend with and I think it's going to take years for this all to kind of suss out. Yeah. Yeah. So just turning the page to some of the areas that I know you specialize in. One thing I know you, you're an expert on is customer loyalty. What do you think SMB small businesses uh, should do to gain customer loyalty that they don't typically do? So I'm a really big believer that customer loyalty is not transactional, that it is based on relationships. And I think too many small businesses rely on something like a points program. Mm. And the problem is that if you're trying to buy somebody's loyalty, then it's dependent on what you're giving them and you get them conditioned that I, I need X. And if somebody else gives them more, then all of a sudden they're going to shift. So that's not actually engendering any loyalty. I think the businesses that do well really get to understand their customer and figure out what their drivers of loyalty are. And the challenge for a business and why um, it's easier for a small business to do than a big business, but why it still is so challenging is that different people have different drivers of what creates loyalty. Hmm. So, and by the way, it may be in this, the same person is different in different scenarios. So what drives loyalty to me for a technology company may be different than what drives loyalty to me for a makeup company or a clothing company. So that's where, it, where you have to spend a lot of time getting to know your customers and figuring out the things that are going to, to move them and, and customizing things. It, it could be as simple as finding out you know, about their kids or their favorite sports team or their favorite food or beverage and, and making notes, you know, obviously, you know, you guys in terms of, of, you know, being leaders in CRM, that's a great use of a CRM system to really keep notes on your customer about the things that matter. I can tell you, I have a hotel that I stay at in New York uh, when, when I can travel yeah. and they've done a couple of things that have completely generated loyalty that are very um, cost-effective. One thing that they do is that they allow me to keep my luggage there. So I have an entire bag that lived there for the entire pandemic, by the way, that has, you know, shoes and, and uh, you know, all the types of toiletry and extra clothing and, and whatnot. And so when I travel back and forth, it's very easy for me to just travel with a carry-on bag, which is a huge value to me. So when I go to travel to New York, where do you think I'm going to stay? The place <laughs> that baggage. has my luggage <laughs> or any place else. And that's just like a little convenient. They have bags in there all the time, but that's something that was really easy for them to do. They knew they made my life easier, but literally I'm trapped into going there every single time because they have my stuff. They've also done really nice things. You know, a lot of hotels will leave like amenities for you when you come in the room and I don't drink alcohol. So a lot of times, you know, if it's a shtick, they'll leave a bottle of wine or champagne. And it's always a big bummer because I know that they've like done this, but I can't utilize it. Right. But my hotel knows to leave chocolate bars or like <laughs> beautiful bottled water or teas. 
And so it's, it's great, not just because I'm getting something, but I know that they've gone through the thought process to customize it to what makes sense for me. And yeah. I feel like those types of things um, can be replicated in any business, whether you're B2B or B2C, but understanding you know, what it is that's gonna create loyalty. And it, it could be your, your best of breed product or service. It could be your customer service. It could be you know, uh, being part of an affinity group. It could be creating an experience or it could just be making their life easier. Like you know, what we talked about with the luggage. So those are things that really allow the small business to outshine a big business in terms of building that relationship. And that's what creates loyalty. Yeah, no, that's that's all uh, really well said and an interesting story about the luggage. But for the hotel to remember that you don't drink uh, alcohol and that you like to leave your luggage there, they have to know who you are and capture that information somewhere. And they do that in, you know, a CRM, basically, a, a customer database. And you mentioned things like sending out little notes to people. They have to know who you are and know where to send it and have your email address and be able to communicate. And it seems like big businesses do that. Well, the successful ones do that really well these days. You know, Domino's app remembers exactly the type of pizza you want, exactly the toppings you want. You literally click one button. It's in your doorstep in 29 minutes. Amazon not only knows what you read, but recommends what you should read next. Uber has a record of all the places you've gone. You just tap again. Oh, Philadelphia airport. They remember where you should go. Even you know what you rated the previous drivers, they said to the better drivers because you downrated the bad drivers. They, they know a lot about you. They capture it, and it's all in a system that allows them to teach, to communicate with you, even though you know they're, quote, big business, but they almost treat you as if they know you. How can small businesses do the same thing, and why don't they? I think that for many small businesses that they're so caught up in the way that they've always done things. And listen, they have so many things on their plate that changing is hard, but I think it's imperative if you wanna be successful and also make sure that your employees are being used to um, their best advantage to sit down two times a year and say, you know, where are we using technology effectively and where are we not? What kinds of things are we doing that are taking up too much of our time that can be sourced to technology? And, you know, asking those questions, and it's something that we've done in our own business, the concept of CRM, customer relationship management, sounds so big and scary but it can be so very easy to use. And it may be that, you know, even if you're not using it, you know, as like a sales organization would be to like log calls, you know, something as simple as just categorizing that information. And even if it's not automated that it's pulling it up, at least the employee can then look in the profile that's been created and access that information and be able to act upon it. And so, yeah, I think that small business, you know, from the constant email touch points to using CRM to store that data and using it as a way to help get to know your customer better and really create that, that relationship is something that small businesses, you know, not enough of them are taking advantage of. I mean, I, it, like you said, like, it's interesting how something like Domino's obviously uses artificial intelligence to remember, but it would be just as easy for the restaurant that we go to every week 
to have the server input that data and for them next time we come in to get a ticket and go, okay, like literally every time this woman comes here, she orders these things. So you might just want to say, hey, you know, we see that you love this. Would you like to try this? Or, hey, you know, you might want to try this or even to like give a, a, a free appetizer to say, oh, well, I, I know you always like this. We think this pairs really well with it. So we just wanted you to try it. Those kinds of little things that personalize the experience are all done with that technology and that customer relationship management and small businesses haven't spent the time to do it, but it, it's worthwhile because it, you can get so much more value out of an existing customer than you can out of a new customer, whether it's getting them in more frequently, whether it's upselling them or whether it's leveraging them to tell other people that more of your time and your focus should be around your existing customer base versus trying to go out and find new customers. Right. Great, great advice. We'll be back in just one minute with more from Carol Roth. Looking for help to launch your business? Check out launchpadamerica.com. What's launchpadamerica.com? It's the site for all your startup needs. Leading providers of business solutions for America's small businesses have teamed up to create LaunchpadAmerica.com. It's a unique site where you can find the resources and mentorship to start and grow your business. At LaunchpadAmerica.com, you'll find a startup guide with free educational materials showing you how to launch your business. You'll also find a starter kit with offers for essential business tools to run and grow your company. Behind LaunchpadAmerica.com are great organizations. Thrive, MasterCard, Intuit, GoSmallBiz.com, Lendio, ADP, Umail, and America's Small Business Development Center. These innovative leaders are proud to support today's small businesses and entrepreneurs. Visit LaunchpadAmerica.com to get your small business blasting off in the right direction. And we're back with Carol Roth, author of The War on Small Business. And I wanted to ask Carol, I guess my least favorite question in some, some ways, which is why so many small businesses just don't make it. You, you know, know the statistics, they say 20% fail in their first year of business. I think it's 50% within three years. Um, it's, it's, it's very hard to make it as a small business uh, owner or entrepreneur. Why is that? Why is it so hard? You'd think these folks enter business with all the best laid plans. <laughs> I don't think anyone enters anything with the best laid plans. <laughs> I mean, think how much time people spend planning their wedding versus <laughs> the rest of their life, right? Everybody likes that initial launch, like the fun part of it. And nobody likes to put in the work uh, to actually make it happen. So I think some percentage of people go in with that sort of rose-colored glasses, the, the delusion that I would get to do what it is that I love to do, and that I'm not really focused on running a business. Mm. Um, and that leads to, to my rule of three in business, which is that everything takes three times longer, is three times as difficult, and costs three times as much as you expect it will. And I think um, you know, kind of the parallel three is that really it takes a, a business about three years to get a foundation underneath it. So entrepreneurs who go in without that sort of stamina to pursue everything like it has to be done tomorrow, like tomorrow's the next day, 
but not having the patience for it to take three years are in trouble. I think um, those who don't have the financial wherewithal to withstand a business that requires capital and maybe not getting paid enough to live on for three years don't have sort of the wherewithal. And I think a lot of businesses, um, you know, just sort of, if something isn't working, they're unwilling to make the, the right adjustments and pivots to figure out, you know, what it is. They're just going to say, okay, well, I'm going to do this and, and be stuck in it and not try to, to, to make little shifts. So obviously it's, it's different in every scenario, but that seems to be the thread that brings them all together. Failures happen for those same types of reasons. Success, on the other hand, is, is wild. Right? It's all sorts of reasons that make you successful. And part of that is, is right person, right place, and right time. And if any of those pieces are off, uh, you know, something that otherwise could have been successful might not be. But failure does seem to boil down to, to those reasons and, and certainly the financial runway and the perseverance and just the wrong person. I mean, not everybody was meant to be an entrepreneur. And if you don't have that sort of pit bull mentality to do whatever it takes and to, to find you know, the next stone and, and turn it over and, and keep going, or if you're somebody who is really great at execution, which a lot of people are, and needs to be told what to do, you know, you'll be a great number two or number three employee. But if you're trying to be the person driving the bus, like the bus isn't going to go anywhere. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Great, uh, great insights. Kara, uh, we just have a few minutes left. I'd like to ask a little bit more about you. First of all, what do you do for fun? I, I, I guess you like to go to restaurants on Friday night. That sounds like a fun <laughs> thing. Well, what else do you do for fun? Oh, man. Well, I, I always have fun. That's like the, the thing about me. I was like, I'm always like in the middle of a joke with myself. So I kind of feel like work is art is fun. Uh, but I'm a huge sports fanatic, particularly football and hockey. So I spent a lot of time consuming sports. I am also a pinball wizard. Wow. <laughs> I have a pinball machine, which happens to be broken at the moment um, in my living room, which is very depressing. And this goes back to supply chains. Like we can't get somebody yeah. <laughs> to fix it. So waiting for them to do that, or perhaps they need to pick up another one. So I love to do that. I like to write, which, you know, obviously helps when you do things like writing books and you're creating other contents, hanging out with family, consume a lot of television as well. I love television. So if you <laughs> ever need good uh, TV right. recommendations by genre, I can help you out on that as well. Okay, good. And uh, so you've written the war on small business. What's what's next for Cowerwath? You have uh, some ambitious plans on the front doorstep here? So, I mean, I've always really wanted to be a game show host. Like that's like the, the whole time, like all of this other nonsense, investment banking, whatever, like it's all been in pursuit of the big goal of being a game show host. So I'm still like trying to figure out how that's going to happen, whether I have to make it happen myself or not. But, but, you know, in some way I'm going to give away cash and prizes to somebody. So, you know, I, I, I actually get to do it when I do hosting on stage at live events, but I'd like to like to make it more regular and yeah, I'm creating some other content in different genres and 
pursuing some things. I'm also like at the point in my career where just trying to spend a lot of time giving back to other people. There's mm-hmm. so many people who just really need help, especially right now. So yeah, I'm like at, at that point now that the, the book's done, you know, the pandemic was an interesting reset for me because I decided there are certain things that I was doing that I don't really feel like doing anymore. And, you know, I'm fortunate to be in that flexible position. So yeah, just a lot, probably a lot of changes to come. Great, great. Well, thank you, Carol Roth. It's been fantastic. Uh, The book is The War on Small Business. Those of you listening can find Carol at carolroth.com. So thanks again, Carol. Thanks so much for your time, Gordon. Appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe and tell a friend or colleague to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. Until next time, make it a great week.